Hi, everyone. It's Ashley. Each week here on the deck, you hear raw interviews from family members and investigators who are looking for answers to cases that, for whatever reason, remain unsolved. But unsolved crimes are often unsolved for a reason. Time has cracked and curved around some of these cases for so long that getting answers has become complicated. Well, now, investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra is turning back the clock to look at an unsolved case from 1991. She's speaking to investigators, key witnesses, and loved ones who are still searching for answers on how exactly 27-year-old Douglas Wagg Jr. died. But here's the thing. While Delia's investigation for this season of Counterclock started as a look into one man's suspicious death, a string of crimes and other mysterious deaths point to so much more. Tune in each week for new episodes of Counterclock Season 6 wherever you listen to podcasts. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent, being there day and night, and building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. When I found out I was going to be a parent, I immediately felt a lot of anxiety and worry. So I went on to BetterHelp to try to look for a therapist to help me with that. My relationship with my family and with my boyfriend and with myself were suffering. I really needed help. I was ruminating a lot. Really getting those thoughts out to a therapist and getting feedback was just life-changing. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's betterhelp.com. Our card this week is Jennifer Wilson, the Nine of Diamonds from Kansas. In 2002, 29-year-old Jennifer vanished without a trace after getting into a heated argument with her living girlfriend. For over two decades, Jennifer's disappearance has puzzled the community because even though investigators think they know who's responsible, they've struggled to come up with the answers to the two remaining questions in her case. What happened and where is Jennifer? I'm Ashley Flowers, and this is The Deck. It was just after 6 p.m. on March 29, 2004, when the Sedgwick County Sheriff's Office got a call from a distressed mother. Her name was Paulette Mattingly, and she said that her daughter was missing. Paulette said she hadn't seen or heard from her daughter Jennifer in 18 months. Now, Jennifer was a full-on adult. In fact, her 31st birthday was just days away. And Paulette said that even though they lived in the same county, they didn't really communicate a ton. It wasn't like the two of them had a strained relationship. It's just that life was busy. And on top of that, they worked conflicting shifts. So it wasn't unusual for them to go months without talking. But over a year, Paulette thought that was a bit much. And there was something else adding to her worry. I couldn't get a hold of Brenda. 
And I called her, and she would never return my calls. Brenda Leonard was Jennifer's longtime girlfriend. Paulette told the deputy this was strange because she and Brenda used to be in pretty regular contact. They actually started keeping in touch around the time that Paulette last saw her daughter. It all started in September of 2002, when Brenda showed up at Paulette's house in tears. Brenda came over, and she told me, crying, that she had an argument with Jennifer, and Jennifer and her, they got really upset, and so she just left in the car for a while. And when she came back, Jennifer was gone. Well, I could understand them getting mad enough to just want to get away from each other for a while. And so that's one thing. I I believed everything Brenda told me. She cried, carried on, and all this stuff. And then she would come back a couple of days later and see if I'd heard from Jennifer. Well, I hadn't. Brenda also mentioned that Jennifer had left behind her beloved German shepherd named Sadie. And Paulette knew how much that dog meant to her daughter. There was no way she would abandon Sadie forever, no matter how mad she was at Brenda. So at the time, Paulette thought for sure Jennifer would just pop back up again. It's just a matter of time. But Jennifer didn't pop back up. Over the coming months, Brenda would check in with Paulette to see if she'd heard from Jennifer, and Paulette would check in with Brenda. But neither of them ever did hear from her. Brenda would also go over to Paulette's place just to cry and talk about how much she missed Jennifer. But as time went on, Brenda's communication with Paulette grew less frequent. She'd call for big things, like to tell Paulette that Jennifer's dog Sadie had been hit by a car and died. But by August 2003, Brenda's communication had stopped altogether. Paulette said she grew worried, so that fall, as sort of a last-ditch effort, she tried to contact Brenda the only other way she could think of. And so I called where she worked, and they said, oh, she doesn't work here anymore. I thought, oh. And she didn't even tell me. Paulette waited a few more months, hoping that Brenda would reach back out. But by mid-March 2004, she was tired of waiting. So she contacted a mutual friend of Brenda and Jennifer's to see if she had heard anything from either of them recently. And what this woman said made Paulette's stomach drop. The friend said that Brenda had been telling people that Jennifer wasn't missing and that Paulette had actually told her Jennifer moved to Kansas City. Understandably, this gives Paulette a very bad feeling, one that she couldn't shake. So about a week later, she decided that it was time to contact police. Paulette told the deputy that she knew something wasn't right. And authorities had a bad feeling, too. And because they were already 18 months behind the ball, They wasted no time jumping into a full-scale investigation. And naturally, the first item on their checklist was to find Brenda, which actually proved to be a challenge. She was no longer living at the home that she and Jennifer had once shared. And she was no longer working at the then-Angels nightclub, where she'd been a bouncer for a long time. It kind of seemed like she just dropped off the face of the earth. But investigators didn't give up. As they were looking into Brenda, they got an idea. She does dialysis. She was doing it three times a week. And I knew where she got her dialysis. And they were there waiting for her when she came in for it. Investigators got Brenda to agree to an interview. And she came down to the station to answer their questions. She told investigators that she and Jennifer had gotten into a fight back in September 2002. She didn't clarify what they were arguing about, but Brenda said that she left the house and drove around in Jennifer's car for a bit just to cool off. And when she came back, Jennifer was just gone. Now, Jennifer's stuff was all there, like her clothing and, again, her dog. But Jennifer herself had vanished and then just never returned. 
Brenda made it seem like after that, she just kind of continued on with life as normal. Well, almost normal. During the five-hour-long interview, investigators somehow got it out of Brenda that she had stolen Jennifer's identity. She was actually using her social security number to work at a new job and get Jennifer's social security checks. It's almost like she knew Jennifer wouldn't be using her social security number herself or collecting her own checks. As if that wasn't a big enough red flag on its own, Brenda also got caught in a lie. She told me that one thing had happened to Jennifer's dog, and she told the sheriff's department a totally different thing. And I had, the only reason that we know that that was a lie is because one of them is a lie. One of them may be true. Even on top of the social security thing, this lie wasn't enough for police to prove that she'd done something to Jennifer or even knew more than she was letting on. But it certainly added to their suspicion. Because if she was lying about that, what else was she lying about? Well, it was going to be hard to find out. Here's investigator Jeremy Knoll with the Sedgwick County Sheriff's Office. Somebody knocked at the door during the interview, and the detective had to step out. And when he came back in to continue the interview, she basically said, I want to talk to my attorney. I don't want to talk to you anymore. Of course, she didn't have to talk with police. She had the right to remain silent and the right to an attorney. But her sudden refusal to cooperate left investigators wondering why she stopped talking and what she wasn't telling them. I was told, after they talked to Brenda, that they didn't believe she left on her own and they thought something bad had happened. But I didn't want to believe it was that she was dead. I did not want to believe that. Paulette thought there was a chance Jennifer was still out there alive. In fact, she had an idea of where she might be. You see... Paulette had adopted Jennifer when she was a baby, and for the past several years, Jennifer had wanted to seek out and meet her birth family. Paulette was always supportive of this, but they had trouble tracking down her biological parents. So Paulette thought maybe Jennifer had suddenly found them, and that's where she had disappeared to. Maybe she was with her birth family, wherever they were. So I did look for them, and if I had known how easy it was, I would have done it way sooner. All I had to do, I knew her last name, I knew the town where she was born, and I looked online, and I got the names and addresses of everybody that lived in that little town that had that last name, and I wrote, a, I sent a letter to every one of them, telling them what I was looking for and why. And within four days, I had three people call me all on one day, her father, her grandmother, and her aunt. Sadly, though, Jennifer's birth family hadn't seen or heard from her either. Like Paulette, the sheriff's office was also coming up empty with their investigation. They had searched the house Brenda and Jennifer lived in back in 2002, but found nothing of value there. I think it hurt us really a lot, too, that we were so far behind the ball on this cold case because, uh, you know, when it was reported to us, I think there had already been two other occupants that had lived in that home. So whatever evidence may have been there was completely gone at the time that we actually got this. With or without physical evidence, though, detectives were convinced something had happened to Jennifer and that she didn't just up and leave on her own. Police spent the following months tracking down and interviewing people who knew Jennifer and Brenda. They wanted to know what their relationship was like and what Brenda had been telling other people about Jennifer's disappearance. There were a couple of old acquaintances of theirs that worked at the Angels at the time that Jennifer and Brenda both worked there. 
These acquaintances told detectives they remembered the day Jennifer disappeared well because there was an argument between her and Brenda leading up to her disappearance that started at work. Their fight was so loud and so disruptive that both were sent home. Now, nobody could recall exactly what day that was, but they said after that, Jennifer stopped coming into work. Some of them said, you know, that they found it odd that Jennifer just wasn't showing up, so they'd ask Brenda, hey, where's where's Jennifer? And Brenda would say the same thing. We had a fight, I came back home, Jennifer's gone. Jennifer's friends said she would have never left that dog. She would have never left that dog at that house. The fact that Jennifer left Sadie behind wasn't the only thing making coworkers and friends suspicious. You see, over the years, Brenda had sort of developed a reputation. People would say that Brenda was very rough around the edges, very gruff, tough. I mean, she was a bouncer at the, the, the gentleman's club. They said that she wore like combat boots all the time and you just knew you didn't f- with Brenda. Friends also said Brenda was a jealous person with serious anger issues. One of her former partners had even filed a PFA, or Protection from Abuse, against Brenda at one point. After learning all of this, police were more confident than ever that Brenda was lying about what happened with Jennifer. So by the time fall 2005 rolled around, investigators were ready to talk to Brenda again. They asked her to sit down for a polygraph, but this was right around the time that Brenda was being prosecuted for illegally using Jennifer's social security number. So by this point, she had lawyered up. And her lawyer, in no uncertain terms, told investigators his client wasn't willing to play ball. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility It comes with being a new parent, being there day and night, and building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. After that, the investigation slowed to a screeching halt. Investigators didn't have a shred of physical evidence, and the one person they were confident held the answers to their questions refused to talk. Over the coming months and years, police returned to Brenda and Jennifer's old property a few times with cadaver dogs, but nothing turned up, and the case remained pretty much motionless. In June 2013, more than a decade after Paulette had last seen Jennifer, Paulette had her daughter legally declared dead. She told the Wichita Eagle that it wasn't a decision she took lightly because she was initially so hopeful that Jennifer was out there somewhere. But as the years passed with no sign of her, she knew the likelihood of that was dwindling, and she was forced to accept the fact that her daughter was never coming home. Paulette missed so much about Jennifer, the way she would randomly write her letters or love on any animal that she found or light up a room with one of her jokes or pranks. Paulette would often think back to one of her favorite memories of an elaborate prank that Jennifer pulled on her friends back in high school. Jennifer was setting up a deal to have people, she was interviewing them. But when she played it back, she played different questions. And so she was getting them to answer one way, which would make sense. But then when she put in the own, put her own voices later, it made them look really stupid. (laughs) So those are the kind of things she would do with her friends, you know, laughing. But they had a great time that night. They set up all sorts of little gimmicks where they would 
catch each other in a embarrassing, hopefully embarrassing. <laughs> it was memories like that Paulette clung to as the investigation fizzled, and she began to lose hope that she'd ever know what happened to her daughter. But then, in 2014, the Sedgwick County Sheriff's Office dove headfirst into a cold case initiative. They dusted off Jennifer's file and pored over it with fresh eyes, seeing if there was any more that they could do, or if there was anything missed in the initial investigation. And they decided, yes, there still was plenty they could do. I mean, for starters, no one from their team had even spoken to Brenda in 10 years. That's a long time for a guilty conscience to eat away at someone. So in 2016, they tracked her down and went to have an informal conversation with her. Two of our detectives went to the house and just kind of talked to her. You know, hey, we're, we wanted to talk to you about Jennifer. They weren't there very long. One of the detectives used the word or crap or something. And she said, oh, I'm offended by your language. Get out. After being kicked out by Brenda, investigators knew that they were going to have a hard time getting her to talk anymore. So they started to shake the tree a bit. So we started interviewing a bunch of her close friends. And what was really interesting about that was most of her close friends had heard of Jennifer. They'd heard the name, but each group of friends was told a different story about where Jennifer was. That A, she disappeared. B, Brenda said, I saw her up in Kansas City a few years ago. Another story was that, oh yeah, I just talked to her a few years ago. I think she's up in Northeast Kansas somewhere. Other friends said Brenda told them she'd talked to Jennifer pretty recently. It was clear that she was telling different people different things. While it was certainly helpful to learn about Brenda's lies, they already knew she was a liar. That wasn't helping. But when one door closes, a window opens. Or maybe you pry open the door, whatever you need to do. Either way, there was someone close to Brenda that they really hadn't talked to before now, and they thought that person might have some important info. And that's Brenda's nephew, who we're going to call Dominic. Detectives knew that Brenda was super close to Dominic. They knew Brenda and Jennifer had practically raised Dominic's stepson. So if Brenda had actually done something to Jennifer, Dominic had to know something. Or maybe he even had a hand in helping her. Investigators started trying to track him down, but that proved to be much harder a task than they thought. At one point, they were sure that they'd found him in a prison in Dallas, Texas. I mean, the inmate at the prison had the same name and same birth date as Dominic, so investigators flew out to interview him. But when they started talking to this guy, they realized this wasn't the Dominic that they were looking for. The inmate was from Texas, said he'd never been anywhere but Texas, and his entire criminal history was in Texas. He clearly wasn't Brenda's nephew. It took a bit more sleuthing, but eventually detectives did find the right Dominic. We started actually doing some surveillance on him, just watching him. We eventually asked him to come in for an interview because we started to gather some, some information about him. So we called him in for an interview a couple of times, and each time he was just a little standoffish. You could tell he was being deceptive in some of his questions. So we did uh, what's called a geographic polygraph. I'd never heard of it until this. So what we did was a polygraphist from the KBI came down and we had, we set up the interview room with the, you know, the polygraphist had his table and his machine. And on the wall was a big map of the property. And the property was sectioned off into I think five different sections. And just, you know, I'm, I'm not going to put words in his mouth, but to summarize the, 
what he did was basically he said, you know, okay, did, did something happen to Jennifer in quadrant A? Did anything happen to Jennifer in quadrant B? You know, did you have anything to do with Jennifer's de- disappearance in quadrant A? And, you know, questions like that. We have a picture of the map that the Kansas Bureau of Investigation used in this interview. That's in the blog post for this episode. You can find that at thedeckpodcast.com. But to give you a bit of context, the property Jennifer and Brenda lived at in 2002 was massive. There was a house, a barn, a big fenced-in pasture, and this huge field. Like, we're talking five acres in total. Although Dominic claimed to know nothing about something happening to Jennifer on that property, the polygraph indicated deception on Dominic's response to quadrant B. That's the quadrant of the map with the barn in it. So armed with a failed polygraph, detectives swooped in and began questioning him. But he wouldn't break, and he wouldn't admit to knowing anything. And because police had nothing to hold him on, they had to let him go once the interview was done. Detectives did later go and search that area of the property with cadaver dogs, but investigator Knoll said that they didn't find anything. After that, there was another lull in the investigation. But this time, the standstill would only last two years, because in 2018, the Sedgwick County Sheriff's Office got a call. So we had somebody come forward and say, hey, got information on this cold case, and the, the information seemed very credible. Making the tip even more credible was the fact that the story this tipster told was one investigators had heard before. One of the stories that came out was they believed that um, Jennifer may have been buried below the deck, the back deck of the house. And that was just a, a hunch that people had. But as we heard that hunch, then we heard other people saying, Oh, yeah, I remember, you know, the the deck was being worked on on the back of the house. Okay, well, that's interesting. Why were they working on the deck? Well, it was just old and falling apart. And there were a bunch of boards just pulled out of the middle of the deck. I remember that. And I remember a pile of of new lumber sitting on the side. And, yeah, I think uh, Brenda's nephew came over and helped her rebuild the deck. Okay, cool. Well, that's all interesting little pieces of information. And then that's when a gentleman came forward and he said, hey, I've got this information that I heard it directly from this person who said he helped bury a body under this deck. So it was good info. Investigator Noel wouldn't say for sure if the person this guy implicated was Dominic. But he did confirm the person the guy named was, quote, closely related to the suspect. Now, it's worth noting that the back deck of the house was in a different quadrant of the map than the area where Dominic showed deception during the polygraph in 2016. But at this point, investigators had heard the deck story from so many different people, they figured there had to be some validity to it. And I keep thinking, who's to say they're both not true? Maybe something happened in quadrant B, but then her body was hidden in whatever quadrant the deck was in. Or option C, polygraphs don't mean much. Either way, detectives got a search warrant for the house, and they got the homeowner's permission to do a thorough search that involved completely destroying the deck. Once they demolished it, they dug. And they dug. But after about six feet of digging, investigators gave up. They found nothing. We asked investigator Noel why they called it quits after digging that far, and he said that they figured there was no chance Brenda or Brenda plus another person would have dug more than six feet, especially under a deck to bury a body. 
Even though they didn't find anything by digging that day, they didn't leave the property empty-handed. It was in this search where they removed the, the back sliding glass door from the home. They found traces of uh, what they believed to be blood on the bottom of the door. Investigators collected what they could of the substance, sent it off for testing, and waited for the results with their fingers crossed. If they could prove it was Jennifer's blood, that would be huge for the investigation. I mean, it would be the icing on the cake for a case against Brenda. It took months to get the results back, and when they did, it wasn't what anyone was hoping for. The lab said that the sample was too small. They couldn't even find a partial DNA profile, let alone a full one, which meant that it couldn't be matched to Jennifer. In fact, the sample was so small that they couldn't even 100% prove it was blood. With the dead-end deck tip and some disappointing lab results in the rearview mirror, investigators decided to look into another potential lead uncovered during their rounds of interviews. And this one was another story that they'd heard repeated a few times. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent, being there day and night, and building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. So in all these interviews, we heard it in two or three different interviews that, oh, we heard Jennifer's body was taken to a pig farm and then, you know, devoured by the, the pigs at the farm. And then in one of those interviews, somebody talked about this pig farm because I guess it was kind of a, a party area. And they would go back here and just drink, you know, bonfire, whatever, just have a good time. Investigators looked into the pig farm, which from Brenda and Jennifer's old home was about 27 miles away. And this farm was pretty expansive. Like we're talking something like 20 acres. So they knew it would be a massive all hands on deck search to scour the entire property. Still, they felt strongly enough that Jennifer's body might be there that they wanted to give it a go. But they didn't get beyond the planning process. When we talked with folks that have the cadaver dogs about going out here, they said no. They either couldn't or wouldn't run the dogs at the this old pig farm because basically they're just going to alert to the entire place. Yeah, the cadaver dogs would just alert to the entire place. Why? Because of the years of pig feces, dead pigs, X, Y, and Z. They were also concerned about just whatever hazards may be out there for their dogs. And then, you know, talking with some people, I've been told that pigs would devour bones and all. There would be, if, if you put a body in there, it's going to be gone. They're going to eat every bit of it. Without cadaver dogs, searching the property would have been virtually impossible. So investigators were back to square one with their once long list of potential leads now dwindling. What wasn't dwindling was detectives' suspicion that Brenda was involved in Jennifer's disappearance. So they decided to have a chat with the district attorney's office. It was kind of just an informal conversation is what we ended up having, where a bodiless homicide, trying to pr prosecute that is, 
It was very difficult, I think, in any jurisdiction. And I was the one, I was really screaming from the rooftops, you know, uh, that look at all the circumstantial we have. I know it's all circumstantial, but good Lord, how much more circumstantial can you throw together? Throw this in front of a jury and let them, let them hag it out, you know, let them look at it and see what they think. I don't know. I know that probable cause and, you know, people's freedoms, and uh, I, I take that very seriously. The conclusion the DA's office came to was that there wasn't enough evidence yet to prosecute. They'd need either a body or more circumstantial evidence to have a strong case. And I get it. I understand they're, where they're coming from. You know, trying to prosecute a bodiless homicide is very difficult for them. While the sheriff's office started looking for fresh ways to uncover new evidence, Paulette was also trying out new avenues to get justice for her daughter. In 2019, she began talking with a psychic. The psychic told Paulette that she knew where Jennifer's body was buried. She said it was in a field, somewhere you could look west and see the sunset, somewhere close to a fence and near some trees. Everything the psychic described matched the area Paulette had long suspected her daughter was hidden, that big open field behind Brenda and Jennifer's old house. The psychic actually asked to visit the field, so Paulette took her there. And she had these rods for, for like you when you witch for water, if you've seen some of that. And the rods are inside of a little tube. She's not touching the rods with her hands. And the wind was blowing horribly, as it does in Kansas. And it was blowing, let's see, it was blowing towards the north, I guess, out of the south. And it was blowing the rods all the time. They kept blowing that direction. And she was walking, and when she hit this one spot, those things started swinging, and they stopped dead stopped and would not move. And so we marked that area. Paulette told investigators about the psychic's revelation, and it wasn't long before detectives went back out to the property to dig. To everyone's disappointment, though, they once again didn't find anything. But Paulette still believes that her daughter is out there in the field, because even though they did lots of digging that day, she said that they didn't dig in the exact spot that the psychic marked. She has helped other people find bodies. So I know that, you know, she's got some some kind of skills and talents in that. And so I keep thinking, you know, maybe that is where she's buried. Since that search in 2019, there has been little public movement in Jennifer's case. But that doesn't mean law enforcement or Paulette have stopped pushing for closure. People talk about closure, and I've, that's something I have not had the kind of closure that you have when you go to a funeral. And that was that has been hard to deal with because it's like people don't know or they don't care or they, if they because they never responded that way like they would have at a funeral. But it's just because nobody really knew for sure when. I really don't even care about the justice anymore. <laughs> I don't care. I, what I really want is being able to find her remains and put them out in western Kansas in the cemetery where my grandparents are buried, where my aunts and uncles are buried, and where I'm going to be buried right next to her. That would be closure. And I've thought about that a lot. Paulette also thinks a lot about what her daughter would be like now, 20 years later. I miss her. I miss her now that I'm older, that I, I feel like, you know, our relationship would be so much different now. She would be 49 yeah, 49. So, yeah, we would have a, a, a totally different kind of relationship now. My daughter was not meant to die at 29 years old. So 
you just, sometimes I just have to pull over and stop the car if I'm driving. Sometimes I'm driving down and it's close to where she used to live or I have a memory of us being there and doing something fun. Then uh, I have to stop. The sheriff's office has far from given up hope for solving Jennifer's case. In fact, investigator Knowles said that they recently got a promising tip. Now, he wouldn't elaborate on what that tip was because he said they need to look into it more. But he seemed excited about it. Noel also said that he doesn't think prosecuting a bodiless homicide is out of the question. If the circumstantial evidence continues piling up, they won't shy away from it. He also said trying to talk to Brenda again isn't out of the question either. They think she's living in Georgia now, and they're going to try talking with her again sometime soon. So whether that recent tip leads to something or they push to prosecute with the pile of circumstantial evidence that they already have, the sheriff's office has a good feeling that justice isn't too far out of their reach for this case. We asked investigator Noel what he thinks truly happened to Jennifer in September of 2002. I think they had a fight. They had an argument. Brenda is an overbearing, very powerful person physically. Jennifer is not. I think that they had an argument and somehow uh, Brenda killed her. And then it's up for debate. I don't know if Brenda buried her herself, asked for help to bury Jennifer, took her somewhere else and buried her. I think it was purposeful. I believe that uh, Brenda's jealous of a lot of things. And I think that she's just jealous of Jennifer being pretty, popular, other people liked her. And I, I bet you that that was the motivator for, for Brenda to kill her is, you know, argument, something about some jealousy going on. And I don't think at all that it was accidental. I think if it was accidental, we would have known that 20 years ago, maybe. I think uh, it completely intentionally she killed her. I think the pig farm thing, absolutely it's a viable thing. Absolutely. But I, I don't see that as much as I see Brenda burying her somewhere on that property. That's what I see more. Especially, I mean, that's a rural area for the most part, especially at dark, uh, at dusk. I mean, she could have drug her out into that pasture and buried her and nobody been the wiser. But that's my personal opinion. Paulette told our reporting team that she hopes this podcast falls on the right ears because she knows people out there hold the answers to what happened to her daughter. Answers to the questions that have led to countless sleepless nights. The questions that she spent over two decades trying to figure out. So I just feel like there's somebody out there that knows something. They don't know that they that what they know is that important. So any little tip is worth going and talking to the sheriff's department. And yeah, that's just when it gets emotional because they think somebody knows something and they need to help us. I can't believe she's not let something slip, that she's said something, that she knows more. You know, somebody knows something too. And I think there's other people that know things and they don't realize that that clue plus another clue put together might be just what the sheriff's department needs to find out where Jennifer's buried. And another thing about this whole thing too is that I prayed to God immediately when I heard that a lot of this I said don't let me be angry and I've never been angry at Brenda I don't want to see her I don't want to talk to her 
but I don't feel any anger. And I think that God blessed me with that prayer because, you know, I grieve. But I, I said, don't let me be angry because I know that anger just eats me up. It doesn't hurt Brenda. And whoever did it, I'm not angry at them. I don't know what happened. It happened. Just let me have her back. You know, let me know where she is. Paulette and the rest of Jennifer's family have waited over 20 years for answers. Answers that maybe someone listening to this podcast can provide. If you know anything about the disappearance of Jennifer Wilson between 2002 and 2004, or if Brenda Leonard has ever talked to you about Jennifer's disappearance, please call the Sedgwick County Sheriff's Office at 316-660-3799. Or you can email. We're going to put that email in our show notes. Jennifer was in her late 20s when she went missing. She was a white woman, about 5'7 and 115 pounds. She had blue eyes and long, curly brown hair. She wore contacts, had a broken front tooth that was repaired, and had scars on her waistline and under her chin. She normally wore baseball caps and sweatshirts. If Jennifer's still alive, she'd be 49 years old today, and she would possibly be going by the name Sydney. The Deck is an audio Chuck production with theme music by Ryan Lewis. To learn more about The Deck and our advocacy work, visit thedeckpodcast.com. So, what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent. Being there day and night and building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.